You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. The term fundamentalism came from a set of books published in the early 20th century called The Fundamentals, which supported resisting the influence of modernism by returning Protestantism to its founding beliefs. Those perspectives are by no means confined to the Protestant church. This conflict with modernity has remained a guiding theme of fundamentalism in each of its religious manifestations. We are surrounded and being consumed by it daily from the media. How can we understand it better? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. With me today is Dr. David Terman, the director of the Chicago Institute for Psychoanalysis. Dr. Terman is well-published when it comes to terrorism and the paranoid gestalt, along with suicide bombers, who, why, and what can be done about it. Welcome to the show, Dr. Terman. Thank you, Dr. Kaskill. Nice to be here. Is it a fact of human nature that in order for us to not have dissonance with our ideas that we actually have to kill the other person? We have to kill them off because if if there is a threat out there that there might be something else uh, and I might be wrong, I can't live with that. And so I, I, as a human being, have to kill you. That is the tendency to, uh, it's partly a default position of the paranoid gestalt, but it's not necessarily true all the time. Uh, That is, that people can also believe in their ideas and be open to others and not feel so threatened by the differences. That's happened a great deal in human history as well. So it isn't inevitable that one must uh, fall into that gestalt, but it's a frequent occurrence. Can you define fundamentalism for me? Has it always been around? Is this a new phenomenon? Is it getting worse? Fundamentalism, that is the the belief in the absolute truth of one's set of religious beliefs and that these absolute truths reside in a uh, clear text that, uh, that unambiguously speaks those truths that phenomenon has been around, but I think it is much, much more prevalent now than it in the last. There, there was a there was a wave of fundamentalism that came over uh, America in the eighteenth century, nineteenth century, and uh, that is it is much more prevalent now, of course, since I think since the collapse of communism, actually. So the the initial wave was that with Protestantism. It was a, a, a big, the Great Awakening in America was of a, a, a Protestant awakening, yes, which was a fundamentalist movement in America. It wasn't as focused on the Book of Revelation as it is now. The book of Revelation is is where the American Christian fundamentalists get a lot of their inspiration, and that talks about the end time, the last judgment, and the damnation of all who do not, uh, in, in, in Christian fundamentalist terms, who have not accepted Jesus and not believe, do not believe in Jesus, and then Christ will come and, and slaughter all those who do not believe in Jesus. That's the rapture where all those who do believe will then be be lifted into heaven. That particular interpretation was not as as, as severe in in 19th century fundamentalism, but it is that is what uh, 20th century fundamentalism or 21st century fundamentalism has been Christian fundamentalism. As you know, I've I've been doing some work on on the psychology of fundamentalism and the psychology really of revolutionary movements uh, through history. Uh, not only revolutionary movements, and 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 they 
seem to be remarkably, uh, remarkably stereotyped, uh, that you, one can almost write an equation uh, about the nature of the psychological structure of these groups. And that equation I've called the paranoid gestalt. The terms are, are very clear. Uh, it's a group that almost always has a utopian vision. I think it always has a utopian vision of some kind, either heaven or a secular utopia, a perfect society of some sort, that they are striving against great odds and in, and in the position of the victim to establish. They're trying to establish this this wonderful utopia, and there's only one thing that stands in the way of establishing the utopia, and that's the evil other. The evil other has many manifestations, but there's al- always... The Jews... The Jews are one. The West for Islam is another. The Jews were that for the Nazis. The bourgeoisie for the communists and the aristocrats and all those plotting aristocrats and royalists for the French revolutionaries. We see it over and over and over again. You have the, so you have this utopian uh, belief. You you are striving to establish it, and and often the establishment of the utopia is synonymous with exterminating the evil other, the Antichrist, the Jew, whatever, and and in fact it's a virtue to exterminate the evil other. It's a good thing to do that, and it's a and 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 you're bad and suspect if you don't want to exterminate that evil other. So you see it in all the kinds of fundamentalisms in Islamic, in in Christian. In in, in Jewish fundamentalism, all of them have precisely that that structure. The the, the terms of each of those is different. Uh, the utopia in each is different. The the bad guy in each is different. But but the structure is exactly the same, uh, and it's it's a very interesting phenomenon. I think very important uh, that we we recognize it as that. Was there a concept similar to suicide bombers a thousand years ago? They just may not have strapped bombs on them, but they they did similar activities. There was one group, actually, of assassins. That's where the word assassin comes from in the Turkish court, where a group of Shiites, they had a a cult that they would kill the ruler. They would get into the uh, intimate entourage of the ruler to kill him by with a dagger, and then they would be killed themselves. And their death was a holy uh, martyred death, and that was that was within uh, Shiite tradition, and they were very hallowed within Shiite tradition. Uh, but that wasn't that that lasted. I think in, I think it was the twelfth or thirteenth centuries. I, I I'm I'm not entirely sure about that, but I, I think that's right. I'd like to ask if you've. Um, had any patients that were suicide bombers, but I, I know the answer that uh, they can't be because they'd be bad clients because they wouldn't be around long. But I know you've done some work in this field, so can you help our audience understand the mindset? Do you have to be in utter desperation or or not at all? Are you at, at, a, at a position of uh, um, incredible religious... Uh, excitement and fervor to, to be able to do that? I mean, do you have to be an incredible believer? Uh, yes, indeed you do. Um, I, I know I have not treated suicide bombers, but I but there have been people who have interviewed them. That is people, that is a man, um, Kosrokovar, 
uh, who's an Iranian sociologist who lives in France, who's interviewed a lot of the French suicide bombers, and a man named Scott Atron, who has uh, interviewed a lot of the terrorists and suicide bombers in, in the field. And for the European suicide bombers, it's very clear that they come from a very alienated segment of the Muslim community in Western Europe. Usually these are well-educated men in their early 20s, uh, sometimes early 30s, who have never felt really assimilated in uh, European society for both realistic and unrealistic reasons. And their intense alienation, uh, their intense personal alienation and frustration as someone who can belong to the community and develop themselves within the community has often led then to uh, great religiosity, that the, the solution to this is the becoming a member of the fundamentalist Islamic movement uh, which says that Islam is superior, the West is inferior, and that, it, again, it is holy to destroy uh, Western uh, symptoms and, and manifestations of Western civilization. There are. So they both are alienated and in, in this uh, holy fervor, which they fervently believe. Again, they know they could not do this if they didn't know that they were righteous and right in destroying the evil other. They could not do this if they didn't. I'm uh, amazed that it hasn't happened on our soil. I, it just doesn't make sense to me that, that they haven't blown up anything over here. And it just seems like we're just waiting for that to happen. There are several issues there. But one advantage that we have so far is that we have not marginalized these people in our society the way the Europeans have. So there's less of an indigenous uh, pool of these people in our society. It uh, doesn't mean that not, that everyone feels uh, acculturated, but the Pakistanis in London and 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 the northern uh, uh, Africans in Paris uh, who are segregated in these um, uh, suburbs that are outside of the cities live in dreadful conditions, but not just economically, but again, are, are really, really shunned or segregated in their society. That is not true here. And so we don't have that indigenous group. It doesn't mean that they can't come over and form cells, but it's somewhat harder. And it doesn't mean it won't happen because it, it can, but it's, it's, somewhat, it's somewhat more difficult. Uh, I think the greater problem for us, though the other is not a problem, the greater problem for us is our own Christian fundamentalists um, who are not violent at this time at all, most of them, because God is going to do this nasty stuff. But uh, if we had a severe breakdown in our own power or our own cohesion, either with an epidemic or if there were some kind of a, a serious a terrorist assault on a city, uh, if we began to, to feel uh, as a culture and a, and a community very embattled and, and frightened and fragmenting, then I think these, some such group could become violent. Here, but we're not at that point. We're not there now. yet. No. Let's go back to the world of psychoanalysis. Sure. Can religion and/or faith survive in a normal analysis? Um, are there analysts that are religious? It's my understanding that most of them are. They say they're atheists, although they don't really have the proof. But most of them are atheists and tend to believe that religion is a coping mechanism. Uh, I I um. Freud, of course, was totally irreligious and, and insisted that uh, religion was an illusion. 
But contemporary analysts, I think, have a less severe view of religion than Freud did. I think that many of us can see that there is maybe, for those who want it, there may be a place for religion in the lives of some people as an expression here in in self-psychological terms, as an expression of being part of a larger whole and feeling a sense of of connection with something larger and more abstract. So I, I think there can be room for religious experience in those who are so inclined. I don't think we need to legislate one way or the other, in, however we feel, whether we feel there is no place in our own lives uh, for such things or, 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 or whether we don't. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank you very much for coming into the studio. Uh, our guest has been Dr. David Terman the director of the Institute of Psychoanalysis in Chicago. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.